welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 69 for the first quarter of April 2013. The topic I'm going to talk today is about the solar neutrino problem and young Earth creationism. Now, this is not an argument that most creationists still use because it's been solved by science. But you can still find it on many Young Earth creationist websites without disclaimers that appear elsewhere on their website saying that you shouldn't use it as an argument. The claim that creationists are not supposed to use anymore is that until about 2001, there was a problem with particles emitted from the sun and arriving at Earth not being what they should have been predicted by science. But creation science could solve the problem by making the sun less than 10,000 years old. To understand what's going on here, I need to take you through the main process of fusion that goes on in the sun, or at least the first part of it. The primary process is what we call the PP chain. That's the letter P, where P stands for proton. A single proton is a hydrogen nucleus, where a nucleus is the center of an atom. So, again, two protons. The first step is that two hydrogen nuclei, or two protons, smash into each other and merge to form a single new nucleus. But the nucleus is not made of two protons. It's made of a proton and a neutron, so it's still hydrogen. A neutron has a little bit less mass than a proton, so in order to change from two protons to a proton and a neutron, a little bit of mass has to be lost. This is done by releasing both a positron, which is an electron but oppositely charged, and by releasing a neutrino. This is the only step in the PP chain that releases a neutrino, so I can stop there and move on with the solar neutrino quote-unquote problem, or non-problem as it is now. Neutrinos, according to the standard model of particle physics, come in three different types, or what we call flavors, plus an additional three that are the anti-neutrinos of those three types. The term neutrino itself means a small, neutral one in Italian, and in physics they are written with the Greek lowercase letter nu, which looks like a V in English. They have no electric charge, and hence why they're called electrically neutral. And until the 1990s, or really the early 2000s, they were assumed to be massless, kind of like a particle of light, a photon. But like light, they still have an energy associated with them. Unlike light, neutrinos are incredibly difficult to detect. They barely interact with matter at all, and the saying that I heard when growing up is that a single neutrino could travel through a light-year-thick slab of lead and still not interact with any of the lead atoms. At Earth, the amount of neutrinos that hit us is about 70 billion, that's with a B, billion, per square centimeter per second. I took out a ruler and measured my hand, and that number, 70 billion per square centimeter per second, means that there are about 10 quadrillion that's Q, quadrillion, neutrinos streaming through my hand every second, and they don't interact. That's one of the reasons why, for a very, very long time, they were thought to have no mass. 
I said at the beginning of this discussion that the standard model predicts, and we have detected, all three different types of neutrinos plus their corresponding antineutrinos. The three types are the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. And despite the name electron neutrino, it still has no charge. The main difference between these three flavors of the elementary particle of the neutrino is their energy. I'm going to throw out some numbers here, and then I'll explain it in a moment. The electron neutrino's energy is a maximum of 2.2 electron volts, or EV. The muon neutrino's maximum energy is 170 kiloelectron volts, and the tau neutrino's maximum energy is 15.5 mega electron volts. What does that mean? It means that the energy of the muon neutrino is about 100,000 times more than the energy of the electron neutrino. The tau neutrino is about 100 times more than that. The ability to detect these scales with their energy. That's why particle physicists keep wanting to build bigger and bigger and higher energy particle detectors, because you have to have more energy in order to detect these higher energy particles. The electron neutrino is so low energy that Wolfgang Pauli was able to detect it in 1930. The muon neutrino was detected in the late 1940s, and the tau neutrino wasn't detected until the mid-1970s. It was still theoretical until that time. Another important point about the energy is that's how we can figure out what kind of neutrino should be produced in the PP chain when a proton turns into an electron. By taking the difference in mass between the incoming proton and the outgoing neutron, then scaling by you know, Einstein's equals mc squared, so scaling by the speed of light squared, we can get the energy of the neutrino that should be emitted, and we get the electron neutrino. So that's what should be produced during the PP chain of the sun's energy-making process, the electron neutrino. And that's also what we should detect at Earth. We can also tell how bright the sun is, and we can measure the amount of energy from it that hits Earth. From this, it's really actually basic geometry. You take the area of Earth and then the area of a sphere at Earth's distance from the Sun, and you can figure out how much energy needs to be emitted from the Sun per unit of time. We'll just say per second in this case. From that, we can calculate how many PP chain reactions need to take place per second. From that, we can calculate how many electron neutrinos should be created per second. And from that, we can calculate how many electron neutrinos should be passing through Earth per second. And from that, we can then design an experiment to detect neutrinos, calculate from the standard model the likelihood that a neutrino would interact with our detector, and hence be detected, and then see if that prediction matches what really happens. It's really as simple as that. Now, if you don't want to go back and listen to that last minute or so, the basics of what I just said are that we have a model for how many of this neutrino should be produced, we can figure out how many should be detected in an experiment on Earth, and then see if that experiment matches the prediction. The first experiment to test this was in the 1960s. I'm not going to get into the details of how neutrino detection works, because that's really a side issue for this whole discussion. Suffice to say, I'll have a few links up in the show notes that talk about them. 
What's important is that this first experiment from about 50 years ago was designed to detect the electron neutrino. And it detected the electron neutrino, just not the number of electron neutrinos that should have been detected. It was short by about two-thirds, not really a small margin of error there. Experiments over the next several decades in many different types of experimental apparatus and many different ways to detect the electron neutrino showed the same basic two-thirds factor shortcoming. Since multiple different kinds of experiments were run by multiple different groups, the most likely problem was that the sun didn't behave as we thought it should. There were a few early attempts to alter the models of how the sun produces energy, like maybe somehow part of the core had shut down, but since it takes thousands of years for light to work its way out of the core, but neutrinos just stream forth easily, we wouldn't have noticed it yet. Or maybe the core ran cooler than previously thought, so it didn't need as many PP chains, and so we didn't have as many neutrinos coming out of the sun as we had previously thought. But advances in other fields of how to observe the sun and different ways to independently test these different measurements of how hot the sun was or how much energy was being produced came out that the early models were correct. So we had a problem. Energy is made by the PP chain, and so we should get a certain amount of electron neutrinos out of it, but we only find one third of them. The only way this could happen, it was thought, is that the core of the sun is cooler, which independent methods measuring it found that this was not the case. Or the only other way was that the experiment was wrong on Earth. But again, we had very different experiments and different ways of detecting them, and they all had the same deficit. Hence, we had the solar neutrino problem. As tends to happen whenever there is some apparent crisis in science, creationists will try to come in and claim that if the universe is just about 6,000 years old, that saves everything. And even if it doesn't, it helps save it and the rest is done by God. That happened in this instance. How exactly the young earth creationists managed to do this while retaining any shred of intellectual honesty is beyond me, however, because they effectively do what I'm terming observation mine, kind of like quilt mining where you pick and choose different parts of different sentences that support your idea. The young earth creationists in this case, observation mine, picking and choosing the most modern science that supports their idea, but ignoring the modern science right next to it that refutes it. For example, in the solar neutrino problem, or at least the parts of the problem that they claimed to solve, they accepted the parts of the standard model that say neutrinos are massless. They accepted parts of the standard model that the energy levels of neutrinos are this, that, and the other thing. They accepted the experiments, showed what the detected number of neutrinos, or at least electron neutrinos, actually were. And they accepted the basic tenets of nuclear fusion and the PP chain in the sun that gives you the neutrino in the first place. In order to accept these, they also have to accept that the speed of light is constant because that's how you get energy from mass and vice versa. They also have to accept the rates of radioactive decay because that's how many of the neutrino detectors actually work. But as I talked about in past episodes on radiometric decay, and we'll hopefully discuss in a future episode on their views of the speed of light, they reject these two things in other cases. You can't have it both ways, but 
they attempt to do so. Meanwhile, while accepting these other things, they reject other things. So for example, they reject every single independent observation and method we have of figuring out how old the sun is, what the composition of the sun is, and how hot the core of the sun is. You see, they have to in order to say that their solution to the solar neutrino problem is that the sun is in fact about 6,000 years old. According to them, this then solves the solar neutrino problem because a younger sun would have less helium and would have a lower core temperature, which would mean that there would be less neutrinos produced in the first place, which is what we observe on Earth. In other words, something that was proposed by scientists in the late 1960s but rejected soon after based on other observations that show we do know how old the sun is, what it's made of, and how hot it is, they reject those parts of it, but then they take in other parts and it Alright, with that little mind freeze out of the way, moving back to the realm of science, I mentioned that there were two basic ways to solve this. Either the model for the sun and fusion in it was wrong, or the experiments were wrong. But neither were. That's why this is a false dichotomy. A third option exists, and it falls into the category of a supporting theory that feeds into these other two things, where that supporting theory, or hypothesis, or assumption actually in this case, because it was assumed, was actually incorrect. It had been assumed in the standard model that neutrinos had no mass. Without mass, they could not change type or flavor. Again, neutrino type is also called flavor in particle physics. I don't know why, it's just weird science. But if neutrinos have mass, even just a teeny, teeny, tiny bit, then they can oscillate or change flavors, and based on various quantum mechanical properties I don't even pretend to understand, when you observe any given neutrino, you may observe it as another type. This was first proposed in 1968, and so the missing neutrinos could simply be other types. But in order to do that, they would have to have mass. They would also not travel at the speed of light, but just under the speed of light. That is the solution to the solar neutrino problem. The electron neutrino is the lowest energy neutrino and hence the easiest to detect. It wasn't until about 40 years after the first big neutrino detection experiments that a detector was designed to observe all three types, the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. The first experimental hints at this were from the supernova 1987A. This was due to a difference in the arrival time of neutrinos at one detector on one side of Earth versus another detector on another side of Earth. The arrival time was different, but it was a little bit slower than it should have been if the neutrinos were traveling at the speed of light. But there were so few hits, in other words, so few detections of neutrinos, that the error bars pretty much overlapped with the speed of light and there was nothing conclusive out of this experiment. Of course, we can always go back and say hindsight and say, well, yes, this was the first hints at it, but you really couldn't say much of anything conclusive from these timings of supernova 1987a. The next experimental hints at this was in 1998 with a detector in Japan. 
they found that fewer neutrinos from below the detector were found than coming from above, when these particular neutrinos were muon neutrinos produced in Earth's atmosphere by high-energy cosmic rays interacting with various things. That, again, is sort of a side issue for this. The important thing is that the neutrinos coming from above the detector were traveling just through Earth's atmosphere and a little bit of Earth's crust because the detector was underground. The neutrinos coming from below the detector were coming through the atmosphere and then through the bulk of the planet itself and then being detected by the detector. So there was a little bit of extra time, and in that little bit of extra time, the hypothesis was that the reason that fewer neutrinos were detected, again, fewer muon neutrinos were detected coming from below the detector, the hypothesis was that this was because that the neutrinos coming from below had time to change flavor. They oscillated to a different type and hence were not detected. Three years later, in 2001, or 2001, at the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory in Canada, which had been retrofitted to detect all three types of neutrinos at once, they found all three types. And they found them in the right amounts to add up to all of the neutrinos that should have been produced in the PP chain coming from the sun. In other words, we were right about the amount of neutrinos being produced in the sun, we were right in our experiments. But the reason that we only found about one-third of the neutrinos is that en route to Earth, the other two-thirds had oscillated to a different flavor that wasn't detected in the same experiment until about 40 years later. So in one go, we solved one problem with astronomy and learned something else about particle physics, that the neutrino has a teensy tiny little itty bitty bit of mass. I really like this topic because I think that it's an excellent example of how science works and how pseudoscience doesn't work and how it's really a science stopper. Let me explain. Scientists, not the creationists, identified a problem. Based on what we think we know of how energy is produced in the sun and the byproducts of that energy production, we should be observing something specific at Earth. We're not. The scientists then take the next step along the scientific method and come up with the idea that either our models of what's happening are wrong in some way, or our observations are wrong, again, in some way, or something else upon which the models rely are wrong in some way. In this case, it was that very last point. Neutrinos were not thought to have any mass, and so they shouldn't change from the sun to Earth. But if they do have mass, then they can change. An experiment was designed to test this and found that prediction to be correct, thus solving the original problem and the idea of how energy is produced in the sun now has no known issues. Unless, of course, you're an iron sun or electric universe proponent or a follower of James McKenney, all to be discussed in future episodes. On the other side, you have creationists. They latched on to an apparent problem with the science of something. They muck around with the numbers and, hey, if the sun were only 10,000 years old, then it would have less helium and so we have our hands and wave them around and we can get the numbers to work out and say that the sun is therefore young. In other words, instead of continuing the process of science, they find the anomaly 
go back to God Did It Recently and stop there. And for a very long time, at least several decades, this was a frequent argument among many young Earth creationists. And now that the experiments have been done and the problem solved from a scientific standpoint, that argument by creationists is completely nullified. It's even in the list of arguments creationists should not use on several leading young Earth websites. The same thing happened when Kuiper Belt objects were discovered in the mid-1990s, when creationists have been saying for a very long time that there was no source for comments, therefore got there recently. Then, after the Kuiper Belt was discovered, it turned into, well, there's no Oort cloud, because it hasn't been seen, therefore got there recently. Go back to episode 3 for more on that. Besides moving the goalpost, this is a case where, at least in my own opinion, as I wax philosophical as I record this on Easter Sunday, when you hang your hat on God filling an apparent gap, or non-observation, or anomaly in science, and then that gap is eventually filled, the role for your God becomes asymptotically smaller. I'm not a theologian, but to me, that sounds like bad religion. And that's why I think it's important to leave this main segment by pointing out that I'm not necessarily out to quote-unquote get religion. I'm here to point out when they drift into the realm of science and try to use it to bolster their claims that they fail time and time and time again. There is no new news this episode, and again, I'm skipping Q&A due to, uh, well, we're almost going to run on about half hour on this episode. In terms of feedback, I actually have a few emails and corrections. First correction comes related to episode 67 on the Chelyabinsk meteor, or the Russian meteor from a few, actually about a month ago. James wrote in to correct me when I said that Asteroid 2012 DA-14 passed within the orbit of most satellites, about 27,700 kilometers or 17,200 miles. I was incorrect. That is inside geosynchronous satellites, but the majority of satellites are in low or medium Earth orbit, which is less than a few thousand miles or kilometers above the surface of the planet. So DA-14, or 2012 DA-14, was outside the orbit of most of those satellites. A second correction comes from Linda, related to an episode from very long ago, episode 28. Linda wrote to me on Facebook to point out a rather bad speako that I made. I was talking about the fake story of Planet X Part 2, Gilbert Erickson's Wormwood, and I was talking about his word salad sandwich about dark matter reflecting gravity waves and other such weird things. What I wrote correctly in the transcript, but did not say correctly in the episode, is that dark energy has to do with the expansion of the universe. Unfortunately, I slipped in a dark energy has nothing to do with the expansion of the universe. So, sorry. In more feedback related to episode 21, I discussed the geographic pole shift due to some mechanism or other. I used as my primary model some of the claims of one Brent Miller, who seems to now have disappeared from talk shows just about as quickly as he popped in about four years ago. One claim Miller made was that in 705 BC, 
Chinese astronomers recorded that, quote, the sun set twice, end quote, which he says means the planet stopped spinning, rotated backwards, stopped spinning, and then rotated forwards again. In the episode, I said I could not find a source for this other than Miller's own stuff and surmised he may have made it up. Kudos to Rebecca, who wrote in and said that it appears he actually did have a real source, a book from 1997 entitled Historical Eclipses and Earth's Rotation. Chinese astronomers were describing a solar eclipse where they said, quote, the day dawned twice. He may have gotten his year a bit off, though, because you can go to NASA's website and find where eclipse paths would have been a few thousand years ago. In both 708 and 701 BC, there were total eclipses of the sun in parts of China. So the Chinese astronomers were just describing what the eclipse looked like to them using a metaphor. Brent, of course, took this literally, changed a word, and he has a pole shift caused by his planet X. Moving on, it is time for The Puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question attemptedly based loosely on the material discussed in attempt in the main segment. There are two past puzzlers to discuss. First comes a puzzler from Brian, and was a makeup for episode 66 on the Schumann Resonance. How many logical fallacies can you spot, and what are they? in the quote about the fashion pendant that was the subject of the million-dollar challenge at last year's TAM. I'm going to forego doing the quote again because it's about three or four minutes long and it's really boring and crazy, so we'll just move right on to the congratulations to Parrot on the SGU boards for being the first to send in a correct answer. He identified really four logical fallacies, a false premise, begging the question, and an argument from authority wrapped inside of a non sequitur. The false, or possibly vice versa. The false premise was exemplified by, well, pretty much everything that this guy claimed about his fashion pendant bracelet thingy. The begging the question is, for example, he stated, quote, a base frequency that tunes and balances the mind and body. This assumes, of course, that the mind and body require balancing through some sort of frequency, or even that some sort of frequency even could accomplish such a thing if it were necessary and possible. It's the final statement that's the argument from authority wrapped in a non sequitur, perhaps a non sequitur wrapped inside of an argument from authority. NASA is researching the fashion pendant, or at least the Schumann resonance. Not only is the allusion to NASA an argument from authority, but it also isn't even relevant to the claim that this would work. One can always claim that the U.S. government funded psi research into remote viewing, ergo remote viewing is valid. It's the same basic claim. I think that Parrot did a pretty good job here. The only thing I would add, though it's not really a formal logical fallacy, is the fallacy of making shit up. Next is the puzzler that was actually for episode 67 on the Chelyabinsk air blast, and it was sent in by Jan. How would you find out whether it was a comet or an asteroid that hit? Congratulations goes to Chu, again on the SGU message boards, for being the first to come up with an answer that, other than, of course, Jan, who suggested it in the first place, was correct. Chu's response is, quote, Comets are less dense, so they will be decelerated quicker when they hit the atmosphere and will explode at a higher altitude. Comets also come in faster and on very elliptical orbits. I think it's this last part that gives the two main ways to tell. 
other than having observed it beforehand or finding pieces of it. Comets are usually on highly elliptical orbits, and their speeds, at Earth, are roughly five times that of the average asteroid. When we clock how fast the object was going and work out its orbit, it's more consistent with this object being an asteroid than a comet. This episode, with the main segment on solar neutrinos, the puzzler deals with stuff coming from the sun. I mentioned that it takes thousands of years for light produced in the core of the sun to reach Earth. Why is that? Try to figure out the answer, and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. And that episode should be about the Ringmakers of Saturn. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send them in. For announcements, a reminder that I will be doing a workshop at The Amazing Meeting, aka TAM, this year. The annual meeting is in Las Vegas, Nevada, USA, and it has workshops on Thursday. My workshop is the very, very first one, bright and early at 8 a.m. Come for the hilarity of seeing me attempt to be awake before noon. Or come to see me and one of the founding members of the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society, Brian Bonner, talk about how your camera lies to you, from ghosts to UFOs, a skeptic's guide to imaging. It's going to be based on podcast episodes 47 and 48, or at least the first part of the workshop is going to be based on those episodes. Then we're going to have an interactive part where we show some famous and infamous images and try to figure out whether they're genuine or faked. And if they're faked or if they're anomalies, we're going to try to figure out what those anomalies are, or how they may have been faked. Along those lines, I will be at the Denver Skepticamp on Saturday, April 27th at the Highlands Ranch Library south of Denver. I will be giving a very early draft version of the first part of the TAM workshop discussing image processing and anomalies. I will try to record it and post it as an episode on the podcast. A third announcement is on yet another appearance. I will be at the Colorado School of Mines for their Yuri's Night celebration on April 12th, actually. So we'll see if that's still happening. I haven't gotten confirmation yet. But I will allegedly be giving a talk on April 12th sometime in the late afternoon or early evening for their Yuri's Night celebration. The talk will be another reprisal of my much critically acclaimed Moon Hoax talk, with some updates and some late-breaking developments. I will hopefully have more details for you on the April 8th edition of the podcast. And that wraps up this topic for the 69th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1. the feedback form on the website, 2. send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Three, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. Four, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode. Six, or five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message, 
am almost up to date with responding to feedback, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also please tell your friends and family and two random people that you'll never meet in real life.